0: welcome to the Peluso Presents podcast. My name is Mike Peluso and I am your host and this is episode number 137 for the week of April 27th, 2020. This week's episode title and the title of our post of the week, as always, is Big Problems, Big Solutions, Career Selection. For long term listeners of the blog, or long term listeners of the podcast, long term readers of the blog, you'll know that Big Problems, Big Solutions is a series of articles where I kind of do a thought experiment where I pick a problem that's some kind of unique problem that many, many people deal with, that's kind of a big, kind of outrageous problem in, in the world. And I come up with my version of a solution. I don't usually research it. Yes, there's a million different versions of solutions out there. It's just my layman's take on what the problem is and what the solution is. And in career selection, I personally see a couple of issues. One of the issues is the inability to sample at younger ages, and the other problem is how easy it is to invest heavily in things that don't really align to your career. And so I kind of explore that in this particular post of the week. And of course, we'll get to the post of the week in just a second. But before we do that, here's a quick little update, because the front of the show, this little intro piece, it's usually very timely, and here we are in April, and we're all still sheltering at home here in North Carolina. I share this because most of my stuff, most of the post of the week, most of the topics of the show, I try and keep evergreen, meaning it's something that somebody can go back and listen to a long time ago, I'm sorry, a long time ago, a long time in the future, and they'll still be able to get some value out of whatever the commentary is. But it's also kind of nice to know, hey, what was going on in the world when this person was thinking to write this stuff and 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 what have you? Because you never know, my great-great-grandchildren may be listening to this in whatever, 100 years. So right now, where we're at, the whole world is frozen kind of with this COVID-19 uh, pandemic scare. It's really more scare than it is. Actual impact. It's not like you walk down the street and everybody's dropping dead. You do walk down the street and everybody's wearing face masks. And the thing is, it's a nasty bug. It's like a really, really nasty flu. And if we were, if this was, say, 1920 instead of 2020, I'm sure a lot more people would be dying. But as long as we're all still sitting here, we're washing our hands, we're taking precautions, traditional precautions, I personally don't think they should have shut down the economy like the government officials have. I mean, we can't do anything right now. You're supposed to stay at home. Every hairdresser, every person who makes their living in the services that's not medical has pretty much lost their job. Uh, I'm fortunate right now I'm working for a government agency. The government agency is allowing me to work remotely and the government agency, I think by default, does not want to let anybody go to keep some kind of money flowing in the economy. Plus this money was already budgeted a year ago. So for those of us who are lucky enough to work at home or those of us who are in, say, emergency services, we got to keep our jobs. But I want to say the last report I heard was 25 percent unemployment, which is insane, especially when you think about how unbelievably low our unemployment was just four months ago. It was like three percent. I do think everybody's talking about a V-curve versus a u-curve recovery i think it's going to be more of a v because everybody is chomping at the bit to get out there and the federal government threw a ton of money at the country in the form of unemployment insurance in the form of stimulus checks etc etc i'm apparently not a very good citizen because i don't trust the future and i put mine in the bank oops tmi about my personal finances aside I would say that I think there's going to be some takeaways. This thing was too big, too broad, and it's lasting too long for it to not have some kind of impact. I'm hoping one of the big impacts is that the highlight on how crappy our internet infrastructure is, uh, I'm hoping it gets acted upon once we're out of this, because that's not anything that you can change overnight, but it's definitely something that can be addressed in the next several years, because this is just unacceptable. The structure and what people are dealing with with this remote work and having really piss poor internet infrastructure hopefully they decide it's a utility and it's got to be a universally accessible utility not anybody not everybody should have to buy it like electricity but everybody should have to have access to it so there's your update as far as we're all stuck at home at least i can get the podcast done that is a good thing uh, because it means that we're able to provide some neat content for you audio-wise. And of course, you can always go to the blog at presentscom or check out Mike Peluso on Medium, and you'll see all of our articles out there. And that's kind of where we're at. So let's get back to the post of the week and this idea that you need to be able to understand what career you're choosing, because we're going to get out of this COVID-19 thing and the fundamentals of the problems with our career selection system, they're still there, whether... We have a pandemic going on or not going on it doesn't change the structure of federal student loans and who can access them and it doesn't change the safety laws and all the stuff that's keeping career sampling from happening with the next generation of workers and we have to address this at least we have to address it if we never want to be in this situation again where people are paying down 30 40 50 60 100 200,000 in student loan debt on an education for a career that they're not in that's got to change that's got to stop so Here's the solution. Here's the post of the week. And then uh, we'll call it a show. So thank you for listening as always. And here's our post of the week. And have a fantastic week. Post of the week. Big problems. Big solutions. Career selection. Years ago, when I moved to Raleigh and lived in an apartment, I met a guy by the name of Jay. Jay was as big as a linebacker and had a heart and personality as big as his stature. He had permanently pinked cheeks and loved a good beer and great music. Jay had gone to college and gotten some kind of environmental and safety engineering degree that landed him a job with an insurance company. They were the ones who were responsible for moving my friend Jay to the Raleigh area. His job was to go into large manufacturing facilities that processed agricultural products. He only went in to point out potential problems and then after there was an accident. This means his days were filled with seeing things that could hurt people or seeing people hurt and killed because the companies didn't listen to him. And then so much paperwork after the fact that his apartment was covered in it. This was not a good fit for a fun-loving guy who liked to drink beer and socialize. So why did Jay do it? Why did he spend tens of thousands of dollars in college tuition and years of his life preparing for a career that was so completely at odds with his personality? A natural follow-up question is, how do we stop this from happening to other people in the future? Big problem? Mismatch between career investment and job. We have a somewhat lacking system right now for career sampling. How this system is currently structured starts career exposure via field trips and tours in primary and middle school. As we advance in our basic education, there are career-related projects and some light job shadowing, which happens primarily in high school. After high school, there is the potential for apprenticeships, college, the military, and or internships. That's where the problem starts. A substantial commitment towards a career is expected by the youth at this point in their lives. You'll notice that an extended period of time working in various environments was not part of the mix of career sampling. This system simply doesn't work well. Without going into all of the research and statistics, There is a huge mismatch between the training most people receive in these post high school years and the career they eventually fall into. About one third of the current workforce has formal higher education training in their chosen career field. That means two thirds either received no training or has high cost training in an unrelated field. I've already discussed the mismatch between biology and the needs of our technically advanced workplaces. If our young people follow their biological programming, they can fall off the rails of career prep. They become the modern proletariat. That's all right for some. Let's face it. Even though the numbers needed for unskilled labor are shrinking, I don't ever foresee a time when we won't at least need some honey-sweetie-baby types. That being said... The big problem isn't the insanity of biology, at least not for the purposes of this narrative. The big problem is all of the resources that have been wasted on training people who are doing something completely different than their educational investment. It's the English major who is now a mortgage underwriter, or the aerospace engineering degree holder who is earning a living programming video games. It could be the social services graduate who is now an admin at a home builder. Like all of the Big Problems, Big Solutions articles, we start with the question of, how did we get here? The answer with the career awareness problem is fairly simple, if a bit long. We got here because of a perfect storm of technology advancement and government. It all happened in the last third of the 1900s. In the earlier part of the modern industrial age, a child could graduate from high school and have enough skills to go work at a manufacturing facility and have a pretty good life. It was usually hard and dirty work, but it paid well. The jobs that were less physically demanding and paid really well went to the children of families who had enough money to send their kids to school to learn higher-level management and analytical skills, i.e. white-collar work. The first government contribution to all of this had to do with continually expanding free-trade agreements. More free-trade generally equals more wealth for all levels of the country's population, so agreements like NAFTA and its predecessors were sold as being great for the country. The theory is that the different countries will do what they are best at, and so there is universal growth inclusive of more jobs and more money paid for doing those jobs most honest economists would tell you there would be a bit of an economic and workforce upheaval as capital and manufacturing flowed to where they met their natural state of greatest equilibrium i.e you'd lose some of the less desirable jobs in america but the savings and profits would create more jobs than the trade destroyed or so was the theory a few other things were going on in the world that we didn't account for at least not in the national consciousness One of them was that the rest of the world's economies were heating up after being decimated during World War II. This created greater international competition for the jobs that did remain in America. The second thing was the encroachment of the information age which suppressed job creation as the productivity enhancing automation expanded. These days, we use the term jobless recovery to describe the current employment malaise but this has been going on for decades to lesser and greater extents. So, John Q. Factory Worker, and really all of society in the mid 20th century sees two things happening. They see that the physically difficult, but good paying jobs which only required a high school education are going away. They also see that a college education means more money and a better quality of life. What do we conclude as a society? We decide that college should be for everyone. Policy is enacted to allow anyone to go to college with government-supported grants and student loans. Guaranteed student loans, in practicality, a third-party payer system, creates generations of customers for colleges and universities around the country with virtually limitless money to spend. The benefits of a liberal education are promoted to parents and youth alike. There is no faster way to get someone to sign on than to tell a population of inexperienced and emotional customers to follow their passions, i.e. they can do whatever they want and there is a pot of gold waiting at the end of the collegiate rainbow. College enrollment soared and the nation's university infrastructure exploded as well. A personal aside that underscores this trend was from my own higher education experience. When I went to the University of Central Florida in the early 1990s, the campus was made up of a handful of buildings. Today, I was told the campus is so big you need a GPS to keep track of where you are. Going back to the third party payer system known as student loans, all this easy money created bloat in the college system. This is one of the major underpinnings of why education has gotten so expensive. If the system wants more money, It's relatively simple to just raise the prices. There isn't much pressure on the part of students to walk away as they don't personally feel the impact of the increased tuition costs. They aren't savvy enough to understand that by signing on the dotted line, they are signing up to a life of indentured servitude until their $60,000 to $200,000 education in something like the liberal arts is paid for. Another major challenge that affects the economy is the displacement of trained tradespeople. Right now, the amount of people we are training for the trades does not come close to meeting the needs of industry. Wages have gone up so much that in many cases, the kid with the $80,000 in debt from liberal U winds up going back to the local community college for a mechatronic certificate or nursing license. It's the only way they can make enough to pay for the student loans while they are paying for other things, like a roof over their head and food on the table. The argument in favor of our existing system. It should be noted that there is an argument to be made for the current system. There are labor laws on the books and a culture of hyper-productivity in the workplace, I don't know a single corporation or institution that encourages lots of young teens to spend time in the professional working environment. It's possible if you own a small business and bring the kids to work with you. They will learn the family business through immersion, but that's very rare. Because of the restrictions on youth in the workplace, mostly career sampling has to happen in college. The higher ed community would argue that taking the different elective courses provides a good enough sampling of the different career options. A college guidance counselor would say that if the student takes an anthropology course and decides they love the subject, then clearly a career in anthropology is a great option. Forget that there is minimal alignment of the course and degree offerings to actual anthropology jobs, which would make sense if the system was really about meeting the workforce needs. The social aspect is also much vaunted. I have one friend who has strongly argued that college, or more specifically, the collegiate experience, is worth the money. She argues that it's one big party, and it's precisely this point where the value lies. What she calls the party, specifically her interactions with other people at the four-year-long social exchange known as college, helped her develop her own unique personality. She contrasts who she became with the college influences to who she would be if she just stayed at home and didn't go to school. She's partially right to be sure. The melting pot of a four-year university campus creates amazing opportunities for personal growth. Sadly, no matter how socially developed one becomes, it doesn't help pay back those tens of thousands in student loans for training that isn't being used. All of this brings us to our big problem. There is no good way to make career decisions before a massive investment in college. The investment is a crapshoot where two-thirds of the players lose. How do we fix this issue? How do we get much closer to matching the advanced education to our ideal profession? Big solution. Lifestyle immersion. The big solution here is simple, but challenging to enact. We need something that looks like total immersion. I have had this idea for a while. I used to think that we needed to have all high school kids work part time. My thoughts were that they should be in school from early morning until midday and then work the rest of the day with pay. I'm still working off that assumption, but I believe the true big solution needs to be taken a step further. I believe that the real solution is an extended sampling program inclusive of lifestyle immersion. I like to think of it as micro-apprenticeships. There needs to be enough time in the different working environments to really understand the job and the lifestyle that goes with the job. It's got to be more than just job shadowing for a couple of days for the lifestyle to sink in. In one example, when I managed a career center, it took six months to really wrap my head around the process of it all. There also has to be a planned rotation to it with months spent in the different environments. The way I see it, if we have a young person who doesn't know what they want, but they know that they want to save the world, we can start by having them work on an organic farm. The immersion will have them live in a carefully chosen average household. They will need to work their tail off at 4 a.m., drive the tractor, work with the local area grocers, etc. After six months of this, they will really understand if a truly green lifestyle is for them. We also have to have them do other things like work as an accountant. Again, we want them to live in the average house for that type of job. They need to be at a desk doing the books. Obviously, without the training, we'd have to have everything double-checked for accuracy. They would do other accounting things like go to chamber networking events and put in extended hours at tax time. Other options could include working in social services, working in medical, working in manufacturing, hospitality, and every other major sector. If possible, there should be a geographic element. I would like to see the students spend months and maybe years working cities, suburbs, and in the deep country. They should live in everything from campers in trailer parks to multi-million dollar McMansions. The experience should include working with their hands, working with their brain, and working in dramatically different environments like working in government versus working in the private sector. It would be ideal if we could figure out a way for them to work for themselves or at least work for a startup entrepreneur. Every kid should know what it's like to work a trade show and in a construction environment. Altogether, this program would help foster personal and professional maturation as well as deliver a structured set of immersive experiences before extensive education expenditures. Considering the students are working, they can earn education credits a bit like how PTO is earned. Over time, they will earn enough to cash flow their advanced education with limited or no student loan debt. The current student loan crisis is real. Every person I have ever discussed the situation with agrees that an education without a loan attached is an ideal situation. How would all this look? How would it play out? Let's use a fictitious student named Johnny. When Johnny enters high school, he starts going to school in the morning for a few hours and then spends the majority of the rest of his day working. It's light duty work at first, maybe retail or food service. The jobs are carefully managed so that Johnny spends half a year working in one area and then moves to a different sector of the economy. The jobs would require the students to be paid at a level commensurate with the average worker. A chunk of the money the student is earning is banked, possibly in some sort of shared account like a pension. The rest goes into Johnny's paycheck, allowing him to have a personal experience that different jobs and different industries pay at different levels. Little Johnny would move into jobs requiring more maturity as he himself matures. This part would admittedly be a bit tricky because kids mature at different ages. Johnny may even go to different jobs slash schools in different parts of the country so that he can experience life in different environments. He can go with a cohort of student workers to mitigate the emotional effects of leaving home. I can see a situation where the 11th graders have a first semester working in government agencies and second semester working in manufacturing. If we align specific grades to specific industries, then that consistency will help the industry adapt to their young workforce. Work is now school. This can continue past high school graduation. Instead of college, Johnny gets to go to even more advanced work cohorts. At some point, Johnny has sampled enough industries and earned enough in his college savings account that he can start attending classes or advanced training in the trades with zero student loan debt. At this point, he's realized he's got more of an intellectual mindset, so he starts specializing his sampling on different thought-based jobs like programming or research. Maybe he really likes working with his hands so he can start to specialize in all the construction arts. If he likes to build things, enjoys the lifestyle of a contractor, then maybe now he has a work slash school balance that changes construction trades every six months. First semester, it's as a plumber. Next, electrical. Following year, it's framing. All the while, he continues to earn and save into the education fund while potentially attending some classes if the work commitments allow for it. This whole concept is a bit like having a military GI bill only with career sampling as an experience rather than military service. Johnny eventually graduates later in life, possibly as a programmer, maybe as a general contractor. The point is, at the end, Johnny has an education, and the education directly correlates with what jobs he is most compatible with and interested in. Johnny also has the benefit of all of his work experience from his career sampling, so he's highly in demand. So where the old program was, start with a vague idea of a career, go into massive debt, realize the degree doesn't work or the working environment isn't ideal, then eventually stumble upon something that can be done even if it doesn't relate to formal training. The new idea is work in a bunch of places that need help, i.e. demand. Earn while learning and develop an innate understanding of likes and dislikes. Also... Part of the new idea is exposure to and consideration of lifestyle of the different jobs. Understanding on a visceral level if the sacrifice is worth it to live like an MD in the country club or it's better to be a mechanic in the trailer park. All the while the working is earning advanced education resources. Legislative Elements As I said at the beginning of the article, the government, specifically the guaranteed student loan infrastructure, is one of the major factors that drove so many into the problem. Child labor laws are also a component of the problem, at least with the younger kids. It stands to reason that if legislation was instrumental in creating this big problem, then legislation that creates incentives to get youth into work needs to be part of the solution. At the time of writing this article, the nation is experiencing one of its low unemployment cycles. Regularly, I work with employers who are lamenting over and over that they don't have enough people. In my experience, they all pretty much talk to the same drumbeat. Nobody understands my industry. It has a bad reputation, they say. This is partially true. I'll also hear, If I could just get more parents and students to understand what we do, they would be happy to work with us. That's also partially true. I say partially true because there are deciding factors beyond familiarization. Another major issue is youth labor laws. We used to have children work, but then that was deemed cruel as employers, at least the unscrupulous ones, took advantage of the child labor the practice was mostly outlawed even in situations where it was enriching to the life of the child. As an example of enriching employment, it can easily be argued that working for two hours every morning on the family farm before the school bus comes is a strong character building exercise. Unfortunately, family farms have all but disappeared, at least as they existed in centuries past. Today, Most jobs are in situations like office environments, service business, or advanced manufacturing and construction. Clearly, there are different needs in the different industries, so looking at youth placements, different jobs should be carefully considered for different ages or maturity levels. No matter the actual placement, the priority should be for time in the labor market, at least a part of each day, even if it's only a young teen or tween who is acting as a gopher. Speaking of maturity, one argument in favor of keeping children out of working environments is that maturity is needed for safety. Right now, there is such a focus on safety that the idea that there would be even infinitesimal risk for accidents for youth on the job is abhorrent to managers and HR folks. I know because I recently tried to make a case at a meeting that accidents happen in school, they happen at sporting practice, and they happen when kids are in cars with their buddies. I argued that the working environment is safer than all these activities and many other things kids do daily. The HR person I was discussing it with refused to even consider the idea. The only way I can see around this deeply embedded culture of risk avoidance are government mandates to take part in the system of exposing youth to work inclusive of insurance and tax breaks for eliminating the risk any business would potentially have in the case of an accident with a child. Outcomes So what does this potential big solution get us? The biggest get is that there will be significantly less student loan debt and wasted time in school. This may not be as much of a desirable outcome for the educational institutions of the world as it is for students who just want to get on with life. I suspect the university and college systems will shrink and change course. I believe that our whole educational infrastructure will have to adapt quickly to provide more slots for real jobs, the jobs that actually exist. They won't be able to have as many liberal arts programs as the students won't easily be attracted to those areas as they have already learned what jobs and skills they need for the lifestyles they want. I can easily see a student who likes music history saying, that's nice as an elective, but not a major. My major better be engineering because when I worked at the theater and lived with the music guy's family, they were all broke and lived in a commune, but when I worked at the engineering firm, they all got to go out for drinks every night and drive awesome cars. Ultimately, after the realignment, the education systems will better match what is needed by professionals and companies, which is the whole point of education in the first place. Another major change will be higher productivity as we get more people to work earlier. From the employers and economic developer standpoint, this is a huge win. What is the net productivity added to the economy by college and university students who are not working or just have a part-time job? What would it be if all of them were working as a main gig and education was happening in tandem with their economic productivity? Will it happen? Like most big problems, big solutions I propose, I know the answer is probably not. The closest we will come is expansion of full apprenticeships, not these proposed career sampling micro-apprenticeships. Should we make something like this happen? I think we should. A deep understanding of careers and a little maturation before the commitment is made to an expensive and extensive education program is not a bad thing. Plus, there is one other added benefit. I know for a fact that a little hard work never hurt anyone. Don't believe me? Just go ask a farmer. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Peluso Presents podcast. You can follow the Peluso Presents efforts via Twitter, at Peluso Presents, on Facebook, on Medium.com, just search for Mike Peluso, on LinkedIn, and of course, on the blog located at www.pelusopresents.com. You can email us directly via peluso at outlook.com. This podcast is available on all major podcast services, including iTunes, Google Play Music, or your podcast service of choice. We love and appreciate any comments and reviews you wish to leave. Please remember to support this effort by sharing and liking the postings on all your social media. If you'd like to support this effort more directly, you can via patreon.com forward slash presents. Thank you for listening, following, sharing, and for your support. We appreciate it.